0: Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Tonight, here on Florida's Emerald Coast, if you go outside after 9 p.m. and lift your eyes to the heavens, a full super moon will be shining down on you. That is, it is a full moon especially close to the earth, making it look larger than usual. But it won't be shining long. At precisely 9.32 p.m. per NASA, the earth's shadow will begin to be cast onto the lunar surface, resulting in a total eclipse of the moon just before midnight at 11.53 p.m., past many of your bedtimes. Skygazers are really in for a treat tonight. The duration of the totality of the eclipse will last almost 85 minutes. And during that time, the moon, our usual bright and cheery friend, will be glowing red. It is a blood moon. And since the beginning of recorded history, the blood moon has been interpreted as a sign of troubles to come. The ancient Greeks believed that a lunar eclipse was a sign from Mount Olympus that the gods were angry. The Greeks would round up captives, slaves, anyone who was disposable, and bring them to their temples as sacrificial offerings, and as the eclipse began to wane and to fade, they would execute the captives as a sign of good faith toward their gods. The Chinese had a myth that a great dragon was attempting to eat the moon, and it had sunk in its great cosmic claws drawing blood, and the people would bang on pots and pans and make as much noise as possible to scare the dragon away. The Mayans and the Aztecs understood a lunar eclipse such as we will see tonight as a possible ending of the world. I mean, how many ends of the world do the Mayans need, really? They had us all confounded back 2012, is that it? The world, was that it, do you all remember? I don't know, they're like some televangelist predicting the end of the world all the time. But they believed that without the right blood sacrifices and the right rituals, all of creation would plunge into eternal darkness. And even after the Greeks and the Persians and the Mayans and the Chinese could predict the when, the where, and the why of an eclipse, these superstitious beliefs persisted. Judaism had its issues understanding and interpreting the lunar eclipse too. They didn't worry too much in ancient times about solar eclipses. Because the Jewish calendar is not a solar calendar. So when the sun went dark, it meant something was going to happen bad to all those Gentiles. But we'll be just fine. But when there was a lunar eclipse, they were a little more concerned with that. Because the Jewish calendar is based on the cycle of the moon. And when the moon went red, surely it was a blood moon. In fact, it is the Jewish people that gave us the phrase blood moon Joel chapter 2 verse 31 the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord an ancient description of both a solar and a lunar eclipse spelling out judgment for everyone Jew and Gentile alike Like the Aztecs and the Mayans, it was a sign in the heavens heralding the end of the world. Christians, we direct spiritual descendants of the Jewish people were quick to capture this language. Jesus uses it in the Gospel of Matthew. Simon Peter used it on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. And the most direct allusion is in the book of Revelation where all ill, omens, bad news, judgment, and trouble end up. It is Revelation 6, verse 12 and following. The Revelator writes, I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. The sky rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. The great day of wrath has come, and who is able to survive? So, for a long time now, many Christians get as uneasy with an eclipse as the superstitious Aztecs. Taking ominous prophetic language literally. They associate the red shade of the earth's shadow falling on the moon, which is something quite normal and easily predictable, with the second coming or Armageddon or the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but that's really not necessary. Tonight's eclipse will not cause, precipitate, or hasten the end of ages. Sorry, if you thought this merry-go-round was about to stop and we were all going to finally be able to get off, we're not that lucky. I keep telling my mother-in-law, she's probably watching this morning, she watches the news and says, oh, is this the end of the world? And I tell her every time, no, no, we're going to have to live through it. We're not that lucky. And so tonight, we're not going to be that lucky. It's a very natural event that takes place. Eclipses do not work that way, and neither do apocalyptic scripture verses that record such signs and wonders in the heavens. And that's a necessary disclaimer as this morning's reading is a text from the book of Revelation. And when you heard that, some of you got real squeaky real quick because some of you are afraid of that book. A lot of people are. They don't like to read that and they don't know what's going on in there. Well, there are several ways to approach this book and three major methods come to mind. Number one, the idealistic view, that is that the book isn't so much about events in the past or in the future, but it is about the archetypical struggle of good versus evil, light versus darkness, the cosmic struggle that has always played itself out. Some read the book that way. Two, historic. This view accepts the majority of the book as having already taken place in the late first century with only the latter chapters having yet to be fulfilled. And then the most popular view in North America is the futuristic view. Proponents of this method believe the majority of the book has yet to be fulfilled from about chapter 4 forward. But one thing we can all agree on, because we're never going to agree on the interpretation of the book. One thing we can agree on, regardless of whatever interpretive lens we look through, is the overall message of the book. Which is a message about not losing faith. It's a message that God will overcome all enemies that good will conquer evil, and while the future appears to be bleak, it is not. Hold to the hope of a reconciling, restoring, conquering Christ, even if you don't live to see it yourself in your lifetime. I love how into Wright puts it in that plucky English way. He says. We all will die, but it's not like it's the end of the world. Isn't that great? We all are going to die, but it's not the end of the world. Life will go on. And the hope of the life yet to come is the one we witness in the Scripture reading from Revelation 21. And Anna introduced it perfectly. I didn't choose this text today. It chose us. It is the New Testament reading from the Revised Common Lectionary, For the fifth Sunday of Easter. But honestly, I was glad to see it. Happy to read it. Happy to hear it read. For what does Revelation 21 1 through 6 describe? A new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, God come to earth, no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow. No more tears. Put a bit differently, the final apocalyptic vision is not destruction. Where did we get that? It is restoration. It is recreation. A new heaven and a new earth constitute a created order that is as it should be. There is balance. There is wholeness. No more petroleum spills. No more nuclear contamination, no droughts, no failed crops, nothing but clean, pure, available abundance. A new Jerusalem. There will be a new social order, a new politic, a restored justice, true fairness. Gone is inequality, poverty, greed, rivalry. There is no more war or violence, no more division, racism, sexism, or hate. And God's home will be among His people, signifying this spiritual harmony. There will be a reconnection, a regained intimacy between Creator and creation. It's a return to the Garden of Eden, really. If Revelation has the last word, Genesis has the first. And there is a quote in Genesis 3 that I so love. The writer says this, The man and his wife, speaking of Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What would that have sounded like? To have such communion with God that you could hear Him coming. He's taking His walk as the evening sun is setting. Well, this happens after Adam and Eve have taken that fateful bite from the forbidden fruit. A story for another time. So when they hear God taking his evening stroll, they hide from God. And God calls out to Adam, Where are you? It's the first recorded game of hide and seek. There's this beautiful Hasidic tale where A seeker comes to a rabbi and he asks a question. He says, I've been reading the Torah and there in the book of Genesis, God is looking for Adam. Is it possible, is it even conceivable that the creator of the world did not know where Adam was hiding? And the rabbi answered, of course God knew. He asked the question because it was Adam who didn't know where he was. It's pretty good insight into the human condition, I think. God doesn't move away; we are the ones who get lost. But what about all those things that hurt us, that injure us, that break our hearts? Revelation twenty-one four. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or sorrow, or crying or pain, all these things are gone forever. I've had enough tears lately. And I've had enough sorrow and crying and pain, and I'll be glad to see it go. I hope you'll indulge me as I make use of this time for public therapy. These last two years have been something, haven't they? Oh, my Lord, help us. Beyond the pandemic, Cindy's dad died in 2020. Our our oldest son's life has unraveled with addiction and mental health issues. During the pandemic, we buried more than 40 friends and family. We sent two boys to the other side of the continent. I was sick for nine months. My mom passed away this week. That's a new experience. I've had a lot of grief, I've had a lot of loss, I've helped a lot of people in their loss, but I didn't know you could feel such a great vacancy. And it's not that the last two years have been all bad, God knows, not at all. It has been a grace too, seeing our children graduate and succeed, two marriages have added two daughters to our family, healthy job changes for Cindy, recovering help for me oh so slowly, marvelous sprawling plans for the future but man, there's been some grown-up troubles, And I know you know that and have experienced it too, intertwined in all of this. And it's just wearisome. And never have I felt the truth of those old spirituals like I have felt them in these last months. Those songs that sing about laying down your burdens. It's just so heavy. And that sounds good, doesn't it? Cindy and I were at Sacred Heart Hospital yesterday morning at the bedside of Neil Moffitt. And you may not recognize his name, but you would recognize his face. He's tall and handsome rascal, and he made his last journey yesterday afternoon. And what my uncle said of my mother at her funeral could well be said of Neil. (laughs) He may have hurt somebody along the way, but he sure didn't mean to. He's a sweetheart. Funny, compassionate, but so many struggles. Primarily, he was an alcoholic. And it's that disease that brought him to the end of his days far too soon, far too young. And I'm not talking out of school. Those who know him best and those who love him most know this about him. He knew it about himself. But he was just powerless, absolutely powerless, it seemed. To wrestle himself free from the chokehold that disease had on him. Neil's brother and I talked about it at length yesterday at the bedside. Neil's attempts at rehab, the starts and the stops, the stretches of sobriety, the fits of insanity. All along, he was a true believer. Believe me when I tell you that he loved Jesus with all of his heart. But that didn't stop all of his troubles. It didn't. Extract him from his struggles. And I said to his brother, and I didn't say this to make him feel better because I truly believe this, I said, some prodigals will take every minute of the day to get back home. And some lost sheep will come wandering to the barn even after the sun sets. And some wounds will have to wait to be healed, not in this life but in the next. And I do believe that. We can't make sense of all of it now. But somehow, way, there is this longing that our wounds, those who have experienced wounds from others and the worst wounds of all, those where we shoot ourselves, those self-inflicted wounds, they will be healed even if not in this lifetime. Because He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these are gone forever. I don't know about streets of gold and pearly gates. I really don't. I think John the writer is just doing his best with desperate words to describe what he saw. And if you were going to describe, I guess, the best place you'd ever seen, you'd use gold and silver and pearls and whatever else would come to your mind. I don't know about all that. And frankly, I don't care. I don't know about a mansion over the hilltop and all those things. But I do believe, and I know this in my heart, and you do too, that you want all things to be well. Do you not? You want your loved ones to be safe and sound and secure. You want injustice to be corrected. You want, in your heart of hearts, the hope that the scales get balanced and some questions get answered. Do you not? So even if you can't buy into this pie in the sky, you know, sky fairy, God going to come take us all away... Somewhere in your soul, you have a hope that things will be made right at some point in the future. And that is the hope given to us in these words today. Somewhere out there, there is a grand and glorious day where God puts the pieces of this broken and scattered puzzle back together again and in the process heals all all wounds, and dries, all tears. One last word, and it's an example that I just love from Peter Marshall, who was the longtime chaplain of the United States Senate. And he said, imagine if we could, if we could speak to you when you were in utero and your mother, and we were to say to you, I know you think this is all there is, but there's a big world waiting for you. The skies are blue. What's blue? The grass is green. What's grass? There are endless horizons, great bodies of water. People breathe air, not amniotic fluid. People walk upright. People grow to be six feet tall. You would not believe it. You would say, well, this is all there is. I'm happy here, I'm safe, I'm warm. This is all there is. There can't be anything bigger than this. And then one day, as Marshall describes, your world collapses. And you experience more pain than you've ever experienced in your life. And you feel this convulsion, this contraction of being shoved out of your world into what you do not know. And when the convulsions end, you're born into that bigger, brighter, better world than you could have ever conceived in your imagination. And I believe that whatever waits and whatever restoration and recreation is had at the end of ages, that it will be something like that. That we will be birthed into something beyond our wildest imaginations that is so much larger than we can imagine, where all is made right, all prodigals get home, all lost sheep find their way back, and all wounds are healed, and all tears are wiped away forever. You have been listening to the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer, will get you there in either case. Visit my website at RonnieMcBrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for listening.